The first discourse that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment was called the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, or the setting of the wheel of the Dhamma in motion. And what this refers to, this wheel of the law, refers to the setting in motion the teachings of the five spiritual faculties, the five spiritual powers of faith, confidence, of effort or energy, of mindfulness, of concentration and wisdom. These are the five powers of mind which are at the heart of a spiritual awakening. Vipassana is the meditation, insight, awareness, is the meditation which strengthens these particular faculties, these five spiritual factors, until they become so strong in the mind, they become so grounded in the mind, that they're not easily overcome by hindrances or by kilesas. As our mind is, that's how our life is. And so as these faculties become strong in our minds, our life becomes increasingly balanced, increasingly spacious, increasingly easy. Just as we develop a skill or proficiency in anything at all, you know, in an intellectual discipline or in music or in sports or in art, the development of a discipline requires practice. And through practice, a mastery is attained. In exactly the same way, these five spiritual factors can be practiced. We practice them, we make them strong, And they become these very powerful governing forces in our lives. Tonight I would like to speak of quite a few different ways these five faculties can be strengthened. How they can be further refined. Very specific attitudes and aspects of the practice that we can employ to strengthen these spiritual powers. Sometimes people hear of sort of suggestions of how to strengthen them, and through the particular convolution, I don't know whether it's of yogi mind or Western mind, but it often gets heard as I'm not good enough. And so then the mind starts judging oneself. I'm not good enough. I'm failing as a yogi. And that whole whole spiral downward. That's wrong view. Completely (laughs) wrong view. They should really be heard as a way of building on the foundation of practice that has already been established. I mean, all of these five factors through these weeks and months and for many of you, many years of practice, these seeds have been growing all along. And these are just ways to further, to further nurture, to further water them. So please hear them in that spirit and see which of the particular ways either there's a, there's a particular propensity for, a particular affinity Or you may hear of some things in which you sense that there really is a lacking and that would be an area to work on. The first way of strengthening these spiritual faculties is through a reflection and a consideration of right understanding. Because the understanding that we have has a tremendous influence on how we're relating to different moments of experience. 
depending on how we understand things, we're going to relate in different ways. For example, if there's a strong belief in self, if that's the basic understanding that we have and are reinforcing, then it becomes very easy to identify with thoughts and with emotions and with sensations. From this understanding of self, we lose a sense of balance, we lose a sense of equanimity. The essence of right understanding can be summed up in one very brief teaching. The chief disciple of the Buddha, who was supposed to be second only in wisdom, second in wisdom only to the Buddha, uh, called Sariputta. Before he met the Buddha, as he was just engaged in different practices and looking for a teacher, one of the first five monks who had become enlightened, he happened to see one of these monks walk by. And he was impressed by just the demeanor and the peacefulness. And so Sariputta went up to this monk and said, what's going on, <laughs> you know, so to speak, <laughs> in Pali? <laughs> and the monk, who already was an arhant, already was fully enlightened, but he said, I'm just new to this order. You know, Buddha's my teacher. Please go speak to the Buddha. But Sariputta just, he wanted to get the gist of it. You know, just please tell me something about the teachings. And just the essence of what this monk told Sariputta at that time, everything which arises out of causes will also pass away. It's very simple. Very profound, very difficult to understand in its depth. But this is the heart of right understanding, that all conditioned things, which is everything we experience, is simply arising and passing away. When we reflect on this, when we reflect on right understanding as a way of sharpening these spiritual faculties, it leads us to a sense or a relationship of greater acceptance. When we remember that everything which arises has the nature to pass away, the mind is much less reactive. There's a sense of equilibrium, a sense of balance. And we can understand quite clearly then the nature of struggle. You know, how many times in the course of a day, in sitting or in walking, going along, going along, and then something happens and there's the sense of straining or struggling in the practice. What is that about? It's about losing the perspective, this perspective of right understanding, Struggle means that there is something going on which we're not accepting, which we're not open to. And so it's very useful at that time, in the time of feeling the struggle or the strain, just to settle back. Don't try to be on any particular object at that time. Settle back, and it's as if one asks the question, what's happening? What is actually here? What is the, what is the present object? It might be some discomfort in the body. It might be an uncomfortable mind state. But what is so amazing is that as soon as we are accepting of what's present, even if it's difficult, even if it's unpleasant or painful, if we're accepting of it, there's no struggle. There's no strain. Whatever arises... Whatever has the nature of arising will also pass away. Can we keep this perspective on each arising object? Can see it quite clearly in our relationship to pain, to painful sensations. 
Now going into them, seeing that it's not just one thing, but it's actually momentary arisings and passings, even if they're all unpleasant. Begin to open and be accepting of each particle of sensation. In our relationship to thoughts and emotions, we also often lose this perspective of right understanding. You know, we get lost in a feeling, in a mood, an emotion. And we just have this sense that it will last forever. And if not forever, at least till the end of the retreat. (laughs) What I found very helpful in this regard there were many times, especially at the beginning of the, in the beginning of my practice, where I would get into such feelings of discouragement and depression, and it was really hard just to keep going. And in working with this feeling of discouragement and depression which would arise, I would, I would work just to expand my time sense. And I would think, okay, in six months from now, Am I going to remember this feeling of depression? And that's when my memory was still good. (laughs) I'm not going to remember it. Not six months, six weeks, a week from now. You know, and so it's just, what that does is it reminds us of this perspective of right understanding. That whatever it is, it's not going to last. It's going to pass away. And the effect of that is to immediately sharpen the spiritual faculties. When we have that perspective, those five factors become stronger. So this is the first way. Recollecting the perspective of right understanding. Tremendously helpful. There's another aspect of right understanding. And it is contained in the very strong words of the Buddha just before he died. Said, all conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your salvation, work out your awakening, work out your freedom with heedfulness, with diligence. So all conditioned things are impermanent. This means every aspect of our experience. So this is a subtlety now of the practice. The implication of this, not only is it that quality of accepting, the other implication of seeing that all conditioned things are impermanent is in how we're observing the different moments. Are we observing one moment of experience in order for another kind of experience to come? The in order to mind. It creeps in in such powerful ways in the practice. Are we with one object anticipating the next moment? From this perspective of right understanding, what is it that we're anticipating? What is it that we're wanting? It's another impermanent experience. And so everything that we may be wanting in the future in terms of an experience in practice is a reaching out for simply another conditioned impermanent changing object. So the implication here of right understanding is not to be reaching out at all. Because what comes is going to be just like what's here now in terms of it being changing and selfless. I don't know whether you can hear what this is about, but it's really about relaxing. 
It's just, okay. Let me be with this one because the next one is going to be just as impermanent as this one. And so there doesn't have to be a grasping for something to happen. It allows for a real sense of balance in the mind. Just with the arising object, without the expectation, without anticipation, without wanting. The image which has struck me sometimes with regard to this is the sense that one gets if you're in a train, now you're riding in a train and you're facing backwards. So you're not looking forward to what's coming, but you're facing backwards and you simply see the last, the last moment falling away. Falling away, falling away, falling away. Sit on your Zafu riding backwards. <laughs> Sometimes I actually imagine. And it's just like each, each last object is falling away and we don't know what's coming up. And so there's no grasping for it. There's no reaching for it. So this is the aspect of right understanding. Both the acceptance of what's there and the non-reaching, the non-expecting, the non-anticipating. Both of those things together strengthen the spiritual faculties. The second way that we can refine the faith and the effort and the mindfulness and concentration and wisdom is through an attitude of great caring and respect for the practice and for our own efforts, really engendering a very deep self-respect for the effort that we're making here. And when we reflect deeply on the value and the benefits of the Dhamma, realize that it is this priceless, priceless jewel in our lives. Because what, it is, what is it about? It's about the purification of consciousness from the forces of greed, from the forces of hatred, from the forces of ignorance. It's this most powerful transformation of consciousness that is taking place. It's really coming to the end of suffering. It's coming to awakening, to full understanding. The Buddha talked of this process happening in quite a gradual way. Now we do it step by step by step. The image he gave, it was a couple of images. One was of the ocean floor sloping away from the shore. You know, and it just slopes away and it gradually gets deeper and deeper and deeper until it goes to the real depths. In another way he described the purification of the mind from the kalesas, from the defilements, he said it's as if there's a boat which is tied to a dock and the rope which is holding it is uh, lying in the water. And it just stays in the water a long time until gradually the rope begins to disintegrate. You know, in one strand, then another strand, then another strand, but it's still maybe holding on until at a certain moment the rope breaks. So it's this gradual process of deepening, of weakening of the kalesis. This is what our practice is about. We take it step by step by step. And so a reflection both of how the process happens and the priceless value for it of it for ourselves and in the world, it generates this very deep appreciation, a very deep sense of respect. We really can get 
we can get a feeling of what the word sacred means. And it's not in a it's not in a sentimental way. It's just appreciating what is truly of value in this world. And to see that it's very rare. You know, the people who are actually willing to do this work and, and you know how it's it's not easy. Just to be willing to see everything that comes up, to be willing to work with all the difficulties, to have the staying power. It's really rare in the world. And so as we reflect on this, there is a sense of great respect for oneself and for everyone else who's walking on the path, a respect for the practice itself. When that attitude is there, when there's a sense of caring and a feeling of respect, the spiritual faculties are supported in a very beautiful way. What are some of the ways we can take care in our practice? Really take care in each moment. A very effective way and one that takes a little bit of effort is slowing down. If we can begin to slow down, it's like we're giving each experience the respect that it's asking for. It's like each experience becomes an invitation for us to pay attention to it. It's a step It's a movement, it's a turn, it's a breath. Slowing down and taking care does not mean that we need to be moving microscopically slowly all the time. There are some people for whom this is natural. Sharon is a wonderful example. I think that when she's on retreat, She's at her natural speed. (laughs) And it's wonderful. When we're on retreat together, I really have this kind of, I don't know, it's probably something like sympathetic envy. (laughs) Because I'm basically quite speedy, you know, and it's really hard. I mean, I I have a very hard time kind of moving slow and deliberately. And so I appreciate the kind of care that's needed to do it. When I'm on on retreat and no matter how slowly I eat, I'm always the first one done. (laughs) But I devised a very good strategy for handling it. I hold back a little so I'm not first on line. (laughs) So then it's not so apparent. And I also know from my own efforts that there are times when it's possible, even for somebody who feels that it's quite difficult, there are times when when one can be going really slowly, you know, and really taking care. But even if one is walking a little bit faster than dead slow, It's more a question of how carefully one is feeling what's going on because there are different levels of mindfulness. We can be reaching for something and be present enough to know we're reaching, which is much superior to having the mind lost someplace. We can know we're reaching, but a deeper level still would be to feel the sensations of the movement at whatever speed we're going. It's just another level of care, or another level of being embodied in the movement. So this is what's meant by a care and respect for the practice. So that we're not rushing through things. There's a real sense at whatever speed we find is appropriate, just to be doing it 
carefully, knowing that it's important. There's no movement, there's no moment that's less important than any other. This care and respect for the practice also extends to how we relate to other people on retreat. A lot of sensitivity is needed. Especially at this time, people have very delicate hearts, you know, and very sensitive. So it's necessary to really have a sensitivity, a, a, a tremendous respect for everybody's practice in terms of noise. You know, you're closing doors. Are you doing it carelessly and slamming the door? Or are you doing it respectfully? You know, in not writing notes and all the many things that we've mentioned over the weeks. This attitude of care and respect, again, is something that strengthens the spiritual faculties. And it leads to a third way. There's the perspective of right understanding. There's a care and respect in the practice and for the practice and for ourselves and for others who are doing it. This leads to a third way of strengthening the spiritual factors. And that is the quality of perseverance and continuity. It's slowly reducing the times of recess. You know, it's like through the day, we all have our little periods, well, I'll take a little break. (laughs) And at times, it's both natural for, for yogis to do that. But it's also an area that we can work with and say, oh yeah, okay, this is an area of recess, let me make a little less, let me fill in that gap. It's just the sense in the practice of continually beginning again. You know, we go off, we find ourselves lost, we're wandering, as will happen many, many times, as you know. As soon as we're mindful, as soon as we're wet, begin again, start again. Having that sense of perseverance, of not stopping. What weakens the mind is the force of kilesas. When the kilesas are very strong, it weakens the power of mind unless there's a lot of attention given, unless there's a lot of mindfulness given. And so we need to be developing a continuity, a strong continuity of mindfulness, noting in each moment, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. There was one time a few years ago, I was on retreat, and I had this incredible bout of comparing mind. It was just a plague of comparing. And I went in and I reported it to Pandita, an interview. And he said, be more mindful. And I thought in the moment, thanks a lot. (laughs) But then I went out, and I actually tried doing it. I thought, okay, maybe maybe you know something. And I just actually started to be more mindful. Instead of dismissing it because of the simplicity of the response, thinking it to be simplistic, I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And it was amazing. I actually stepped up the noting. You know, and I, I really noted very continuously. There was no time for all that comparing because I was so busy noting the arising object. And I was just like, this mirror, it works. <laughs> Particularly, there are, there are just areas that we forget to note. One of the most common causes of the judging, comparing mind to arise, is through seeing. You know, we catch a glimpse of another yogi walking by. 
You know, they're walking slower, they're walking faster, they're something. It triggers the mind, you know, in some way of comparing or judging or evaluating them or ourselves. If in the moment of seeing we were right there, seeing, 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 lifting, moving, placing, there's no room for that comparing mind to come in. The very simple instruction, be more mindful, has a lot of power in it if we can arouse the effort to do it. Sansanin, the Korean Zen master who is a great friend of IMS and a wonderful teacher, he's, he has a lot of very good teaching aphorisms. One of them is, just go straight. Just go straight. No, 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 no. And in that continuity, this strength of mind evolves. So the question then is, how do we strengthen the continuity? I mean, how can we actually do it? A few suggestions. One is to note carefully during the times of changing postures. Because it's the transition times where we often lose it. We may have developed a fairly good continuity in sitting and walking, but somehow in the standing up or in the sitting down, we lose it. A very good signal to remind us to settle back and to note what's arising in the moment is the feeling of rushing. And it's something I became so familiar with being the kind of person that likes to move quickly. As I would be walking around the building, whether on retreat or off retreat, we can get so sensitive to that feeling of, it's like that feeling of toppling forward, of rushing into the next event, the next situation, what we have to do. As soon as that sense, that feeling is strong, Stop for a minute. Settle back into the moment. Note the standing. Begin again from a place of balance, not from a place of toppling forward. It really helps to keep the continuity of awareness very strong. Because when we're rushing, even if we're managing to keep the noting going, our mind is actually ahead of us. The mind is already in the next event. Something else that helps in the continuity is to take just a fraction of a second's pause before a movement. Just a moment's pause so that there's a sense of about to. It's the about to moment. About to reach, about to stand, about to turn. Because what happens so often when we miss that about-to moment is we're sliding into a movement or we're sliding into an activity where we may have missed the whole beginning part. It's like we wake up in the middle of it. If we practice just a, a fraction of a second pause before a movement starts, we're setting the mind up to be attentive for the entire movement. And there's a, there's a tremendous delicacy and grace then that begins to happen. Like a pause, then a movement. Note seeing helps the continuity. Noting the minor movements that we make. You know, we can see it in the sitting, in slight shifts of posture. Or in moving about. Just slight turns, slight twists, slight whatever. Noting the real, the real small movements fills in a lot of the gaps. Sometimes people hear this. 
you know, to strengthen the continuity and to really be noting continuously. And the thought of doing this all day long, from the moment of waking up till the moment of going to sleep. Of course, some of you, I'm sure, it energizes and the thought, yes, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and then there are probably a few of you who think, oh, <laughs> it's, this is too much. You know, I could never do that. Don't begin it with the thought of doing it for the whole day. Take some period of time. You know, just as a way of practicing, really seeing, okay, what would it be like to have that continuous noting? Start with five minutes. Five minutes. And ten minutes. Then half an hour. And just practice working with it. And you'll see that within not a very long period of time, the capacity of our mind to do this actually grows. It can be done with a real sense of interest, with a sense of delight. Just, you know, if the time frame is workable for us. So play with that in your practice because that continuity and perseverance is a tremendous help. Why? I mean, what does it actually do? With a continuity of mindfulness, even for short periods of time, the power of the kalesas in the mind is somewhat weakened because we're, we're noting in each moment. As the power of kalesas in the mind is somewhat weakened, even for brief periods, we might get a taste of some real inner calm in a tranquility, where the mind actually becomes quiet. Not that it stays this way. There's going to be a lot of storms that keep coming. But through this continuity of mindfulness, we may get genuine glimpses of this kind of tranquility. And when we have a taste of it for ourselves, this becomes a very powerful understanding because we know that it's possible. We taste a state of mind. We taste a place of peace in the mind, of inner peace. And it's not what somebody tells us it's there and it's not what we read about in the book. Even if it's for just a few minutes, oh yeah, the mind can become peaceful. That this is possible. And from that direct experience for ourselves, it, it tremendously strengthens the first of the spiritual faculties of faith or confidence. Yes, I can do this. Because of this faith that we have from our own experience, there's more interest. We, we begin to arouse the energy, effort factor. From more energy, the mindfulness gets stronger. From stronger mindfulness, concentration comes. When we have these four in place, of confidence and energy and mindfulness and concentration, when these four of the factors are there, wisdom unfolds by itself. The fifth comes. The fifth comes by the power of these first four. What is the wisdom that comes? We begin to understand this process of who we are as being a process of nama rupa, of mental, physical events. We begin to see the characteristics of phenomena. We see the impermanence. Again, it's not a belief at this point, and it's not intellectual. We actually are seeing it, seeing objects coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. We see the unsatisfying nature. We begin to get a deeper and deeper sense that there's no one home. There's no one behind the process to whom it's happening. So we get glimpses of the selflessness. Don't underestimate the value of even brief glimpses of 
what is possible for the mind. I mean, I know you don't because you're all still here. And what keeps people going? You know, day after day after day, week, months, years of practice, it's these hits that we get. Oh yeah, this is possible. No, I can do this. So there's the perspective of right understanding. There's a care and respect for the practice, for ourselves, for others. There's continuity and perseverance. The fourth way of strengthening the spiritual faculties is basically all taken care of. So you can kind of cruise through this one. It's suitable conditions. You know, peaceful surroundings, good food, good climate. This is a very good place to practice. You know, many of us have practiced in many places around the world. It's not going to get much better. So enjoy it. <laughs> you know, really, it is a very good place. You know, the, the food is good and it's healthy and you're well taken care of. And so you can really settle into it and appreciate, you know, the, the gift of the environment because it's very supportive for the work that you're doing. Fifth way of strengthening the spiritual faculties, something that's a little tricky. It's called the sign of samadhi. Samadhi means concentration. And what this means is that when we feel the practice is going well, when we see the concentration is relatively good and the mindfulness is strong, we pay attention to what's happening at that time. We just investigate a little bit. What's the quality of our effort at that time? How am I practicing? What's conducive? What's, what's helping to support this time of good practice? Now, we just get a sense exactly of that, that quality of right effort, which is why it's happening well. Not too much straining, not too much relaxation. We learn about it from paying attention. We see what the quality of our noting is. We see what kind of posture is supporting it. And the reason that this is suggested, the sign of samadhi, is that then in times when we're having difficulty or we're struggling, sometimes by recollecting, okay, what were the conditions present when the practice was going well? And sometimes we can just find that missing piece. So, oh yeah, now I'm straining too much. And at that time, the mind was quite relaxed. Or now there's a kind of strong energy. And we just, we learn. We learn about those times when the concentration is good. The tricky part of this has to do with understanding that there is a natural cycle to the practice. And it's not that it's one linear move you know, of greater and greater concentration and mindfulness. There are a lot of ups and downs, and it's learning to ride those cycles with equanimity and balance. But it's just paying attention. So we get, we get a little sophisticated about how our minds are actually working and what conditions what. You really learn about it a bit. The sixth way of strengthening these spiritual faculties is courageous effort. It's interesting in English that the word courageous comes from the Latin word for heart. And so courageous effort, it's really great-heartedness.
You know, and if we understand that what we're doing is this incredibly difficult task, <laughs> sometimes it's, it's so striking how difficult it is. You know, we just try to stay on a breath. <laughs> Two breaths, three breaths, but the mind is so slippery. It's just, we're on and it's off. The Buddha acknowledged this very often. He would, just in many of the suttas, he would be saying just how slippery the mind is, how difficult it is to tame, to train. So it's not surprising, you know, as we're working and to see the difficulty of really staying mindful and staying present. What's needed in this understanding, what's needed is the sense of real courageous effort, this great-heartedness. It's a sense of resoluteness. it's 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 a real quality of determination. No matter what the difficulties, I'm going to persevere. I'd like to read you something from... It's a book by Stephen Mitchell. Stephen Mitchell is a poet and Dharma student who's done many translations. He did a translation of the Tao Te Ching and poems of Rilke and translation in a book called um, The Enlightened Heart. This is a book of his own work. And... It's a wonderful book. It's called Parables and Portraits. There are a lot of Western parables told with a little Buddhist twist at the end. This one is Through the Eye of the Needle. From the biblical uh, parable. The camel catches his breath wipes the sweat from his brow. It was a tight squeeze, but he made it. (laughs) Lying back on the unbelievably lush grass, he remembers all those years, how excruciating they were, of fasting and one-pointed concentration until finally he was thin enough. Thaumaturgically thin, thread thin, almost unrecognizable in his camelness, until the moment in front of the unblinking eye when he put his front hooves together, took one long last breath, aimed, dived. The exception may prove the rule, but what proves the exception, but what proves the exception? It is not that such things are possible, the camel thinks, smiling, but such things are possible for me. If the camel can do it, (laughs) we can do it. Such things are possible for me. What generates this sense of courageous courageous effort, this great-heartedness. What generates it in us and what develops it is a deepening sense of spiritual urgency where we understand more and more deeply the absolute importance of what we're doing. The absolute value of this. Now, the whole world of beings, in whatever plane, in in the grandest vision of samsara, of the planes of existence and infinite numbers of world systems, in all of this huge world of beings, it's all composed of this process of nama rupa of mental, physical elements arising and passing away. That's what the process is. And we discover that through our own observation. It's not theoretical. 
If we want to see what this life is, what do we do? We sit down and look. What do we find? That is these elements of mind and body in constant change and constant transformation. And what characterizes this process on all planes, in all realms, is the fact of taking birth and of decay and death over and over again. And there is no one, not the highest Brahma God, not the Buddha, not anybody, who can prevent this process of birth, decay, and death from happening. Because it is the Dhamma, it is the law, it is the nature of how things are happening. And again, it's not a question of belief. We really need to see this and look for ourselves. How is this happening? What is this life? When we do see it, when we understand this deeply and see that there is no place of safety, there's no place of refuge in this changing, insubstantial process. And so it can inspire, when we we have a deep sense of the Dhamma, inspire not a panic. Spiritual urgency is not panic. It's a sense of real inspiration. (laughs) What is possible? Is it possible to actually come to a place of peace in this? And this is what's so important for us, to connect with this for ourselves. Because otherwise, we just go around and around and around, you know, through this one life, through many lifetimes, in this samsaric cycle. The sense of urgency also comes from the understanding that we are really devoid, really, of any possessions. Now, what is it that follows us through life and from life to life? Everything gets separated. If we don't understand this, then we devote so much of our lives you know, to, to acquiring things or relationships or experiences, forgetting that we can't really hold on to anything. Buddha talked about our only true possession being our actions and the fruit of our actions. And that creates a sense of real ardency in our lives, a sense of real vitality. Because there's a sense of purpose, there's a sense of meaning in what we're doing. It's not simply this endless, circular, arising and passing away of phenomena. We see a possibility of coming to rest, of coming to peace. Spiritual urgency is really the wellspring of courageous effort. When we're connected with it, that's what gives us the energy and the effort to persevere through all the difficulties, through all the hindrances, through all the ups and downs of our practice. There are two more ways of strengthening the spiritual faculties, but I think these are probably enough for now. It's through the development of faith, of effort, 
of mindfulness, of concentration, of wisdom. This is the wheel of the Dhamma that the Buddha set in motion. And so these are the faculties of mind, the powers that are within us that we're actually trying to strengthen. In the, in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, these five factors, they're called, they're called indriya, which means governing or ruling forces in the mind. Because when they're strong, they are the ones that are governing our minds and our lives. And you see, you see the, the beauty of them. You know, imagine a mind that is filled with confidence and filled with energy and filled with mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. It's a nice way to live. You know, there's a tremendous, there's a tremendous strength there. And so what we want to do, the practice itself is developing it, but just look at these different ways. You know, it's just further refining, further further strengthening. There's the perspective of right understanding, sort of reflecting on that. There's the care and respect for the practice. There's continuity and perseverance. There's suitability of conditions. The sign of samadhi. It's courageous effort. That great-heartedness. This is what this time here can be about. Let's sit for a few minutes. about the myth of Narcissus, who in the Western mythology became so entranced by his own beauty as he was staring into reflection that he was held captive there. He died. This is the Buddhist version. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot, Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, the reflection too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment he knew the image would disappear. Goodbye, self. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.